You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get we're going to get started. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we just want to thank you for the time that we have together this morning to look into your word. God, I pray that you would teach us from it, that you would feed us this morning as we hopefully come to a deeper understanding of who you are and what you desire for us individually, what you desire for this church. God, help us to be encouraged as you worked in the church at Thessalonica. God, as you built that from the ground up, God, help us to see uh, what happened there. Um, And God, what you desire to happen here in Sonoy as we establish this church in your name. Um, So God, I pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us, you would encourage us. And God, you'd convict us where we need conviction as well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you guys were able to discuss um, this morning... The two questions that we talked about, who do you give the most earthly credit to for your salvation? And then reasons that you don't share your faith uh, more than you do. What are some things that kind of hold you back? I'm curious if anybody has um, an unusual situation where someone shared the gospel with them which led to their conversion. Anybody have someone besides a, a parent or relative share the gospel with them when they got saved? Raise your hand. Anybody like have someone just straight up on the street come up to them and share the gospel and they got saved from that? No? Alright, hopefully it was encouraging for you just to kind of think back on who, who brought the gospel to you. Who communicated Christ and the cross and the resurrection and communicated to you sin that, that needed to be uh, dealt with in your life. Hopefully it was encouraging for you to think back how God led someone into your life and and brought the gospel to you. That goes along with what we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians 1, where where Paul told that church at Thessalonica, he said, you've been been chosen. You've been chosen by God for salvation. And we looked at how that means that God has been working for your salvation since the beginning. That God determined that you were not going to die in your sins, that you were not going to spend eternity in hell, and he was going to do everything necessary for your salvation Even to the point where he made sure someone came to you and shared the gospel with you. And he opened your eyes to the gospel. He opened your eyes to your sin. He brought you to repentance. And he he made you alive in Christ. Alright? Today we're going to look at how God established this church initially. So we're going to look at some background information for the church at Thessalonica. We're going to see some things that happened there. That I think God wants to happen here as well as we establish a church here in Sonoy. So we're going to look at some background information, see what God did to establish this church in Thessalonica, and how we can use those same things as we seek to establish a church here. Some things you need to know, some background info about this church. Let's start by reading in 1 Thessalonians 1. We'll read 1 through 5 this week. Um, we're going to be. In these verses for a couple of weeks probably, so um, we probably won't wrap up here today. In verse 1 it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Anybody know who Silvanus is? Silas. Okay, That's that's the more formal, appropriate name for Silas. I guess Silas is um, short for Silvanus. Um, So that's who we're talking about. Most of us are familiar with who Silas is. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father... And the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you. Not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Some background info about this town. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. Anybody know where that is in in modern day terms? Yeah, it's in Greece. It's over in in Greece. So this is the first uh, wave where the gospel begins to infiltrate Europe. So God uses uh, Paul and his missionary team to bring the gospel into Europe for the very first time, which is important because most of us could probably trace our um, our family history back to Europe. 
Okay, so it was important for Europeans to begin accepting the gospel so that eventually the gospel would get to us. And we see God bringing the gospel into Macedonia. It was an important trade route during that time. The road system that the Roman Empire had established brought most everybody through Thessalonica that was traveling from east to west in the empire. Most uh, of the scholars and theologians that I was studying said that it was kind of understood that if the gospel ever came to this area, it would spread everywhere. That if you could get the gospel to take root in Thessalonica, that there were so many people coming in and out of there that it was bound to spread like crazy if you could establish a church in Thessalonica. So you can see the wisdom in, in God directing Paul to establish a church here so that the gospel would go out as quickly as possible. Some common questions that you should ask anytime you study a book like this. When was it written? Where was it written? Why was it written? It was written in A.D. 50. A.D. 50, if you want to jot that down, this is just some extra information for you. It was written in A.D. 50, which was about 20 years after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. It's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Some people believe that Galatians may have come first. But either way, it's one of the very first letters that Paul ever wrote um, that we have in the New Testament. It was written in Corinth. We referenced this last week. Um, Acts chapter 18. Verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, this is, this is, they've already left Thessalonica at this point. They, they come, establish a church. Now everybody's in... Um, is in Corinth. It says, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul gets rejected by the Jews, but the Gentiles respond to his gospel. His buddies Silas and Timothy have just arrived from, uh, from the Macedonian area. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. We referenced this last week, and we said that Paul could have easily grown discouraged in, in his efforts here in this area and could have easily left town and said, let's go somewhere else. But God comes to him and says, you've got to stay here because there are people here that need to be saved. So you need to stay. And we're told that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He stays for 18 months and it's during these 18 months that he writes First and Second Thessalonians. Why was it written? Why was it written? It was most likely written... As a response to either a report that came from Timothy or perhaps a letter written to Paul by the Thessalonians. You see in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, it says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So we know that after Paul leaves Thessalonica, and we'll see why he had to leave Thessalonica. After he left, he sent Timothy back to check on everybody. Timothy's now come back to him. So this letter may be in response to Timothy bringing him a report saying, hey, this is where the church is and things. These are some things they're struggling with. Or it may simply be that the Thessalonians had written a letter to Paul and now he's responding. Because as you read 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see there's some quick changes in subject, almost as though Paul has a reference point and says, okay, I need to write about this. I need to write about this. I need to respond to this. As though he's almost going point by point. In maybe a list of questions that the Thessalonians had asked them. We also see in several places, um, like four, chapter 4, verse 9, where he says, <clears throat> Now concerning brotherly love. Or your version may say, now about. It's almost as though he's referencing back to either something that Timothy's brought him or something they've asked him. Now about what you asked me about concerning brotherly love. Let me tell you about that. Now concerning people that have died already. What's going to happen to them? It's almost as though he's responding to either Timothy's report or a letter. We also know that it's written in light of the fact that Paul can't get to him. In 1 Thessalonians 
Verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So we know, and we're going to see in a minute, Paul was taken away prematurely from Thessalonica. He had this ministry going on. He was establishing a church. But he was taken away quicker than he would have liked to have been. He wasn't done with what he wanted to do in this town. And he wanted to come back. And he says, I've tried to come back several times. And he says, Satan has kept me from being able to do what I wanted to do. In some ways, Satan has hindered his ability to get back to this town. We don't know know any details as far as what has happened. But circumstances have dictated that, that Paul can't get back to Thessalonica like he would want to. And we see this being attributed to Satan. And we know from, from Scripture that Satan wants nothing more than to stunt the growth of the gospel. He wants to prevent the gospel from going out. Satan, who's wise, obviously knows that Thessalonica is an important area in this empire. Satan would be very aware that if a church is established in this area, it's going to be hard for me to contain the gospel. So Satan is working very hard to keep this church as low as possible, as discouraged as possible, even to the point that Satan is hindering Paul from getting here. There's three things that we can say are specifically addressed in this letter, and they're in your notes. Number one, he writes to address people slandering his ministry. He writes to address people slandering his ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5, it says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He says, we didn't come to flatter you with our words. We didn't come because we were greedy and wanted money. We didn't come to get glory from you guys. He writes this as though maybe some of these people are starting to believe that. And we're going to see in a minute that the Jewish population of Thessalonica hated Paul, hated his ministry, and wanted to stop him from talking. And so Paul, as he leaves, more than likely these Jews began to try to tear down what Paul had been doing in this area. Now, it wasn't uncommon at this time to have traveling teachers and preachers that would come sharing some type of gospel or good news. And many of them were phony. Many of them were out for money, were out for the glory and honor that comes from being a religious figure. And so more than likely, these Jews began to associate Paul with this type of person. They would come to this church at Thessalonica and say, hey, where's your buddy Paul at that supposedly cares so much about you and started this church? Why hasn't he come back to see you guys? He only came to get your money. Now that you've given money to him, he's out of here. He's spending your money somewhere else. He only came for the glory that comes from traveling and getting a quick reaction from the crowd. And so Paul has to write to address this. Now, he's not writing to to address it because he's concerned about his reputation. Paul could care less about long term what these people think of Paul the person. But Paul recognizes if if this church begins to believe that Paul was only out for greed and money and for power and for recognition, they'll turn their back on the gospel. And this church will fall apart. So Paul writes this letter not because he's concerned about them having a good view of him. He writes because he knows that he's the one that brought the gospel to them. It can be devastating if you find out that the person who brought the gospel to you fails in being a Christian. I don't know if, you, I don't know if, if this is true for anybody. It, it, it can be hard to know that someone that brought the gospel to you eventually walked away from the gospel. Or someone that brought the gospel to you ended up falling morally down the road. You're like, hey, that person brought me the gospel and now they're not living the gospel anymore. What does that do for me? Like, Am I really a Christian? Did I really respond to the gospel? Because my mentor, the person that brought me the gospel, doesn't even believe this stuff anymore. So Paul's concerned that they have a good view of him, not because he's concerned about himself, but because he wants their faith to continue. He doesn't want them to turn their back on Christ because these people, these Jews, have torn his reputation down. Secondly, he writes to give additional instruction 
about the Christian life to strengthen their faith. He writes to give additional instruction about the Christian life to strengthen their faith. Remember, he says, we were torn away from you guys. I wasn't done. I wasn't done teaching you the things that you need to know. I wasn't done discipling you. In, 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 in Paul's perspective, this church wasn't ready to launch yet. There was still some unfinished business, some unfinished teaching that needed to happen, some unfinished doctrines that needed to be explained. And so this letter is, is the fulfillment of what he wished he could have done in person. And then lastly, it's to establish clear understanding about death and Christ's return. It's to establish clear understanding about death and Christ's return. Which is why we've chosen to go through First and Second Thessalonians first here at Sovereign Hope. Because we want to be a church that is anticipating Christ coming back. It's cool if you read through this book on your own. You'll find that at the end of every chapter, Paul references the second coming. Every chapter, he references it in some way. He says, Jesus is coming back. He says, it's not a theory. Like we're not, I'm not going to bust out my charts about this has to happen and this has to happen and then this is going to happen and then, then this dragon is going to come in. And this is, he doesn't bust out all these charts about how to understand Revelation and understand the end times. It's not a theory to Paul. It's a way of life. He says, Jesus is coming back, and it's supposed to affect everything you do every day. So he takes it from being this mysterious theory about when Jesus is coming back, and he makes it a truth that's supposed to be lived out every day of our life. He references it at the end of every chapter. That's some background information about this book. Some background information about this town and and what was happening leading up to the plant of this church. But let's look specifically at the Thessalonian church. In your notes there. The Thessalonian church, salvation by divine appointment. The question we ask is, where did the Thessalonica church come from? How did it start? What, what, what made Paul come here? The answer is that God specifically chose to plant it. God specifically chose to plant this church. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Most of us have heard this passage before probably, but most of us have probably not understood what effects this passage had long term. Okay? In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Paul and his missionary guys are, are, are going and they're spreading the gospel. It says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Here, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says, Paul was prevented from going to Asia. He wasn't allowed to go speak in Asia. We don't know why. But for whatever reason, God did not need Paul to go to Asia to share the gospel. So that he was forbidden to speak there. Verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I mean, Paul is trying to share the gospel with people. And God won't seem to let him do it. Paul says, hey, I'd like to go to Asia and share the gospel. There's unreached people there. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the gospel. I need to go to Asia. Says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Paul says, alright, I guess I'll go to um, some other place. I guess I'll go to, to Bithynia or to, to Magia. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, by, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Notice the, the language change there. Verse 6, they went through the region... Then verse 9, or verse 10, when Paul seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Luke joins the missionary journey here and goes to Macedonia with Paul. We sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia, that's where Thessalonica is. This church 
that we're going to study about and read about. This letter, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, is the result of a divine appointment. Paul had no intentions of going to Thessalonica, according to this, this passage. He was going to Asia. He was going to these other places. But God prevented him. In some way, God kept closing doors and saying, Nope, 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 that's not where you're going. Nope, that's not where I need you. Nope, nope. And finally comes to him in a vision and says, and communicates to him through this man standing in Macedonia who says, Hey, come over here. We need you over here. We don't have any gospel over here. We need you to come set up a church over here. So Paul woke up and said, I think we're supposed to go to Macedonia. I'm just, just going off a hunch here. I think, I mean, we're trying to go to these other places. It's just not happening. I think we need to go to Macedonia. This, this, is, this is a divine appointment. God, God says, I got to do something. At I got people in Thessalonica that need to be saved. You guys need to get down there. It's the result of a divine appointment. Number one, God called Paul to Macedonia. Let's see how it progresses. How does he get to this church? Number one, he calls into Macedonia. Number two, God moved Paul, Silas, and Timothy there through persecution at Philippi. They go to Macedonia, but Philippi is also in Macedonia. So they go to Philippi first. There's people in Philippi that need to be saved. Lydia needs to be saved there, the seller of purple. It's just a great, I mean, just sold purple things. Um, the Philippian jailer needs to be saved in, in Philippi. We know that he goes and teaches the gospel in Philippi, but he gets thrown in jail. He gets persecuted and thrown in jail. Him and Silas are, are hanging out in jail. Remember the, the, the jail cell kind of breaks open and they end up witnessing to the Philippian jailer and his whole household gets saved. Lydia and the Philippian jailer's family are the initial members of the church at Philippi. We've studied, a lot of us have studied the book of Philippians together. That too was the result of a divine appointment. God said, go to Macedonia and share the gospel. The church of Philippi happens. But because of this persecution, Paul and his team leave Philippi. And they come to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Turn to Acts chapter 17 with me. We're actually not going to be very much in 1 Thessalonians this morning. Instead, we're going to be... In the book of Acts, looking at the narrative background to how this church starts. Acts chapter 17, we'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Why do you think it was Paul's custom to go to the synagogue first when he came to a new area to share the gospel? Any thoughts on why he would go to the synagogue first? Okay, Scripture talks about the gospel coming first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So Paul kind of follows that pattern. I'm going to go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. If the Jews reject me, then I go to the Gentiles, which is kind of the pattern we see in Scripture. Any other reasons? Why go to the synagogue? Okay, it's the center of town. Which would have been key. You would have had, a, you know, some of the main people in that area, possibly in the synagogue. But also, think about it, they don't have New Testament right now. You know, like, this is one of the first letters of the New Testament. So, so, so Paul's not carrying around his, his ESV New Testament and teaching the gospel from it. If anything, he's referencing the Old Testament. Well, who knows the Old Testament? The Jews. So he comes and, and begins to share to an audience where he's already working with something. Let me talk to you about the Old Testament. You guys are familiar with the Old Testament, right? Yeah, because I know most of you have it memorized. So let me talk to you about this Old Testament. And let me talk to you about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So he always starts with the Jews because he's looking for quick conversions. I mean, I'm, starting from, I'm not starting from ground zero with the Jews. They already accept the Old Testament as God's word. So I can start with something. I can work with something and then go to the Gentiles from this. If I get lucky and Jews respond, then they can help me go to the Gentiles. So it says, as his custom, he went to the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
Number three, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ or the Messiah. You guys are looking for the Messiah. I got news. He's already come. You missed it. He already came one time. Don't miss his second coming. Don't miss the second time when he comes. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks or Gentiles, and not a few of the leading women. So apparently there's some important women who get saved as well, and it's not a few of them, which means it's a lot of them. So this this Thessalonica church had had a heavy women influence in it. So number three, Paul preaches faithfully and people respond. Paul preaches faithfully and people respond. And I want you to think about this. How many, how many Sabbaths did he speak? Three. Which means we're not exactly clear how long he was in Thessalonica. We know it was a minimum of three weeks. And most people think it was a maximum of six months. The man starts a church in Thessalonica, disciples people, establishes leadership in this church in a maximum of six months. We've been talking about planning a church for over a year. Paul comes in and three weeks to six months has a church up and running, firing on all cylinders. We see a report that comes from Timothy and Paul doesn't give a whole lot of rebuke when he writes back to him because these guys are thriving. Whatever Paul does in three weeks to six months, he should have written a book about that. He should have provided the discipleship plan that he used to where it got it done in three weeks to six months. But he preaches faithfully and people respond. But number four, Paul preaches faithfully and people reject. It's not like Paul was some magical preacher where he just walked everywhere and people responded every time he opened his mouth. Uh, Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Isn't it funny? Paul has to defend himself to the church at Thessalonica because the Jews were saying that he was greedy for money. But most likely the Jews were the ones that were greedy for money because through this conversion that was taking people away from the synagogue, these Jews and Gentiles that were giving money to the synagogue are now leaving and going to a new church So it was actually them that were more concerned about the money. Paul has to defend himself, but it's actually the Jews that are guilty of being greedy. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So apparently Paul's staying at this guy Jason's house. And they get word that, hey, Paul and his band of missionaries are at Jason's house. Let's go take them. Let's go get them. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What a great description of what's going on in the book of Acts, in the gospel. These guys are turning the world upside down. Jason and them are probably standing there going, That's right, we are turning the world upside down. You keep saying that. Like, what we're doing is, is, is good. So they have received Paul and these guys, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Like the Jews care about Caesar. Like the Jews care about the Roman Empire. The Jews play this national card of, hey, we're all about the Roman Empire, even though they wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. Hey, these guys are, are doing things against the Roman Empire. You should do something with them. We love the Roman Empire. Saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they worked out some kind of arrangement with Jason and them that they're going to keep peace in this city. They're going to calm down, settle down. Um, And as a result, Paul and, and his guys leave. In order to protect Jason and this early church, they leave. The church continues to flourish, but the instigators are now gone. And it allows the church to flourish Because these Jews can't point at Paul and Silas and Timothy any longer. Verse 10, it says, The brothers immediately went, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So we've left Philippi, we've now left Thessalonica. 
Paul and his buddies go to Berea. Because when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue, which is Paul's custom. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures, scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Jews handle it a little bit differently in Berea. This synagogue is a little bit more accepting of this message. It says they actually dig into the Old Testament. Hey, Paul says that Jesus is the Messiah. Can, is that real? Is that true? Does Jesus fulfill these prophecies? Instead of just rejecting it like the Thessalonian Jews did, the Berean Jews say, huh, maybe he's on to something here. It says, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Man, the important women, just they love the gospel. Um, I mean, they're just responding to it. But look at verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. I mean, these Thessalonian Jews just can't get over this. They, they get Paul out of their city, and then they catch wind that he's, he's down the road preaching. Well, they go down there and start agitating people down there. This is Satan trying to hinder the gospel. Satan wants nothing more than to provide disunity and tear things apart when things are going the way God desires for them to. Churches are being started. People are, are, are passing from darkness to light. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. I'm going to rescue the, the offspring of Eve back to me. God tells Satan in the Garden of Eden. He says, I'm going to bring mankind back to me. And now we're seeing it happening in, in droves. We don't see like mass conversions happen in the Old Testament. I mean, for the most part, a lot of people think there aren't a whole lot of saved people coming out of the Old Testament in comparison to how many people lived in the Old Testament. So this is big news. I mean, people in droves are transferring from Satan's kingdom to Christ's kingdom. Remember, we were told we transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light when we're saved. This is happening and Satan hates it. And he's doing anything he can, even using God's chosen national people to try to stop it. Now... Think about Paul's perspective here. I got a dream that said I was supposed to go to Macedonia and share the gospel. So I did. The only thing I knew to do was to go to Macedonia. I've been thrown in jail. I've been pushed out of Thessalonica. And now I'm in Berea and there's Thessalonians here kicking me out of here as well. Was that really a dream from God? Like... Um, or did I just eat something funny that night? Like, was I really supposed to go here? Because I'm getting rejected everywhere I go. I'm getting persecuted everywhere I go. So you can imagine that, that Paul was probably beginning to wonder, was this all for not? Like, you know, he doesn't have email. He can't check his email and get, you know, emails from the Thessalonian church that says, hey, we're doing great. We still love Jesus. We still love the gospel. I mean, he has left and he doesn't know what's happened. I mean, did I just waste my time? Because it didn't seem to go well. I was only there three weeks, maybe six months. I mean, I mean, is, is, is it over? Like, did that church fall apart? Was I really supposed to go to Macedonia? That's why 1 Thessalonians 1.5 is so important. The application there in your notes, the gospel is powerful. It can't be stopped. And our efforts are not in vain. The gospel is powerful. It can't be stopped and our efforts are not in vain. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 5. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly missioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Basically, he says, because when Timothy came and told us what's going on, you guys definitely accepted the gospel that we brought to you. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. He says it, it, it was worth it. My effort wasn't in vain. Like the, the report that Timothy's bringing to me is that you guys are still Christians. You're still following Jesus. The church is thriving. Paul says, I can't boast about it because I was only there for a short amount of time. It doesn't make sense that you guys are still doing this. Divine appointment. God says, there are people in Thessalonica that need to be saved. And I'm going to bring Paul there. 
You may be able to look back on your life and realize that God had divine appointments to bring you certain places so that people could either be saved or encouraged in their faith. We've talked about them some here. That at the time, I didn't understand why God was bringing me to faith to teach. But if God doesn't bring me to faith, then Jordan's not sitting here and Lizzie's not sitting here. Haley's not sitting here and everybody that came with them's not sitting here today. If God doesn't bring me to faith to teach, then they're not a part of this church right now. That's a divine appointment. And I can't boast about that because I didn't want to go teach at faith. That wasn't my choice. That's a divine appointment, how God guides us and brings us places to share the gospel with people. And he does that here for the church at Thessalonica. And what we can see and understand here, number one in the application, is that God uses people to evangelize. God always uses people to evangelize. God doesn't send an angel to Thessalonica to preach the gospel to these people. He sends a dream to Paul's head and says, go to, go to Macedonia. Because God uses people to evangelize. Which means people in Sinoi only get saved if people evangelize to them. No angels are coming. No secret messengers of God are coming to Sinoi or any of the areas surrounding here where we live to preach the gospel. The gospel goes out if we preach it. God always uses people to evangelize. Number two. It doesn't have to take long to grow a church. It doesn't have to take long to grow a church. The more serious we take this church plant in Sonoy, the faster and more likely it is to grow and be effective in this area. If we, if we take a long-term perspective of, we got years that we're going to be here. Like, no sense in hurrying the whole process of sharing the gospel here. You know, like we'll try to do it maybe every every other week we'll do a mission project or something. No, we have to be serious as a church, not just as a church scheduling church events for that type of thing, but as individuals. Hey, I got to share the gospel with people. I got to help build this church up. We're wanting to see new people come to Christ through this church. We have examples in scripture. It doesn't have to take years. Now, do I believe something special was going on here early in the book of Acts where Holy Spirit was really moving? Yeah, I mean, I understand that God was doing some pretty unique things during that time. But I don't think we can use it as an excuse and say, well, we're, we're a long way away from the book of Acts, so it doesn't happen that fast anymore. If we expect little from this church, we'll get little from this church. If we expect to see one person saved per year, if that's our expectation, then, then we'll be lucky to get that. What are your expectations for this church? How fast do you expect this church to grow with new converts? It doesn't have to take long. Number three, gospel is opposed a lot of times when it is shared rightly. The gospel is opposed a lot of times when it is shared rightly. Don't think for a second that when you jump on board gospel ministry that everybody loves it. Don't for a second think... That as, as a church, as we start to get serious about what we're doing, that Satan is not going to take notice of what's going on here. Don't think for a second that Satan is not going to try to tear us apart as a church and bring disunity to this church over silly things. Over silly disagreements about stuff that just really doesn't matter. There are things that we're going to have to make decisions about because we just have to make a decision. And not everybody's going to agree with that decision. But in the long run, we're, we're about the gospel here. So as long as it doesn't hinder the gospel, we've got to be flexible at times with some of the decision-making processes around here. And I guarantee you, as, as we become effective in this area, Satan is going to want to tear that apart. Tear it apart inwardly, tear it apart outwardly. Anything that he can do to hinder the gospel. So we've seen the Thessalonian church. Salvation by divine appointment. But now let's look at Sovereign Hope Church, Sonoy. Will it be salvation by divine appointment for this area? The question is will there be a Sovereign Hope Church Sonoy? I mean, are we going to see people converted here? Are we going to see people come to Christ and become members of this church? Not because they transferred from another church, but because through our efforts they were saved. That's what happened at Thessalonica. Paul didn't bring, Paul didn't bring his people and leave them there and say, hey, here's, here's a church in Thessalonica. I, I just imported people from where I was and made a church in Thessalonica. No, the bulk of the church is people who were in Thessalonica. We want to see the bulk of this church become people who live in this area, 
people who live in Griffin, people who live in Peachtree City, people who live in Noonan, but people that come to Christ for the very first time. That's what we want this church to be built from. Now, this morning you guys discussed reasons that maybe you don't share the gospel as much as you should. Anybody want to share some of the reasons that were shared in your group this morning? Anybody? What is the reason that we don't share our faith more often? Okay. Okay. Uh, a discouragement over not seeing people respond to it. Okay, that's valid. There's also the well, who am I to come down the center? So who am I to be able to go tell you that you need to Right. Okay. The the perception that it's not it's not right for us to tell somebody something like that because we don't possess any qualities of our own that, that validate what we're saying. That we're nothing special, so who are we to tell someone that they're wrong in the way that they're living? Other reasons that we don't share our faith more than, than we do. Most people just are afraid. Okay. Fear of rejection. Okay. There's also fear of Right? Don't know enough? And then there's the assumption, too, that everybody you come in contact with, because we live in a, quote, unquote, Christian nation, that they've already heard the gospel. Okay. They've already heard it, so it's not, we're not an unreached people group, so if they want, if they want the gospel, they can get the gospel anytime they want. I think the whole of uh, things that you can explain to you say, this is just for my faith really comes in, that people have a hard time talking about that kid. Okay. Can't yeah, can't prove something about the Bible, then it um, is hard to get someone to accept it. I'm thankful that um, God anticipates these excuses. He anticipates these reasons, and He eliminates everyone for us. He recognizes who we are. He recognizes how we are going to feel about this great commission. He anticipates it, and then for our own good, he eliminates it. He eliminates every excuse. And I want to use an Old Testament account from the life of Moses to show this. You'll remember Moses was called by God to preach freedom, essentially, to the children of Israel. Now, it was physical freedom. They were in slavery to Egypt. And God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, I want you to go deliver a message to Pharaoh and to the children of Israel that you guys are leaving. That, that slavery to Egypt is done with, that you're leading them out. Which is essentially the same message that we've been told to go communicate. That you want to help lead somebody out of slavery to sin. That you want to bring them the good news of Christ. And that you want to lead them to Christ. And we see Moses respond in Exodus chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Moses responds just like any of you did this morning in your discussion groups. And he brings the exact same reasons that we bring here in the New Testament. He brings them thousands of years earlier at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11... God has, God has just said through a burning bush, nonetheless, that I'm going I'm to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And you're going to be my spokesman to do that. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So excuse number one. I'm not qualified. Moses says, you got the wrong guy. I ain't got any credentials. I don't have any right to go back there and tell people that I'm leading them out of Egypt. You got the wrong guy. This is not who you need to do this. I don't have anything to offer. I'm not qualified. I don't have the right to go say this. I'm not qualified. Exodus 3.13 Then Moses said to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? Excuse number two, I don't know enough. I don't have answers to all the questions these people are going to ask me. I'm going to get into dialogue with the children of Israel and say, hey, I'm supposed to come lead you out of Egypt. And they're going to say, really, who sent you? Uh, mm, uh, yeah, this burning bush told me to come tell you guys this. Eh, get out of here. Like, what are you doing? Moses says, I don't have all the answers. They're going to ask me questions, and I don't, I don't, know, I don't know answers. Exodus 4.1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Excuse number three. People won't listen to me. Moses says, if I go down there, they're going to say, Yahweh did not appear to you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not appear to you. Get out of here. We're not listening to what you have to say. Which is the same excuse that we have. People aren't going to listen to me. I'm going to go try to share the gospel. I'm going to sit down with somebody, tell them about Jesus, and they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. Excuse number four. Chapter 4, verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Excuse number 4, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not the one that you want to communicate this important information. I'm going to get my words twisted. I'm going to not know enough. I'm going to blow it. In fact, I might lead somebody the wrong way. I might tell them the wrong thing. I'm such a bad speaker. And then Exodus 4, 13 through 14. It's crazy. God doesn't get mad. He doesn't get mad at any of these excuses. Actually, we're going to come back to this. Let's look at the promises to Moses. Look at the promises to Moses. In Exodus three eleven, he told us, I'm not qualified. In Exodus three twelve. God says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Moses says, I'm not qualified. I can't do this. God says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. He tells us the exact same thing in Matthew 28. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You go share the gospel. You go plant churches. You disciple people. And then how does he end it? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm asking you to go, but just as a reminder, in the same way that I sent Moses, but I went with him, I'm going with you guys. So yeah, we're not qualified. We don't have the credentials to share this message. But Jesus says, I go with you. I go with you in this great commission. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to go with you. So we're not alone in this. Secondly, I don't know enough. I don't have all the answers. God says in 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Response number two is I'll give you what to say. Moses says, I'm not going to know all the answers. In fact, here's one question. I don't even know who you are. God says, here's the answer. Here's the answer to that. God gives us the same promise in the New Testament. Look at John chapter... Well, don't, don't look there. I'll read to you quickly. John 14, verse 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still, you, still with you, Jesus. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. God says, Moses, I'll give you the answers. In the New Testament, God says, Julie, I'll I'll bring to remembrance the things that you need to know when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. If it's something that you need to know, the power of the Holy Spirit, God lives inside of us. God says, I'll bring it to your remembrance. You may have been sharing the gospel at times, and you, you remember things from late trip 2009. Stuff that we talked about. 
Then all of a sudden you're like, you're talking and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who knew I remembered that stuff? When we fill our minds and our hearts with scripture, when we sit under teaching like this, when we go on retreats and we sit under teaching, it gets stored away. And you may not recall it if, if me and Ben are talking, because Ben doesn't have to know it right then. Ben doesn't need that information to tell me because I'm already a Christian. But Ben may be sharing the gospel with somebody at work, and, and, and the guy asks a question, and Ben knows the answer. But he may not have known that answer two hours ago. But in the context of what's happening, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance. How do I know that? Because Jesus promises it. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring to remembrance things that you need to know as you share the gospel. Excuse number three, people won't listen to me. The response is people will listen. Response number three, people will listen. God told Moses, he says, I'm going to make them listen. He says, here's some signs that you're going to do, and they're going to listen to you. For us in the New Testament, we've got Revelation 7, 9, and 10 to back it up. We can use the excuse and say, people just aren't going to get saved. They're not going to listen. They're not. Tell that to John who wrote Revelation 7. Tell that to John who stood in the throne room and saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the future worshiping God. John writes and says the gospel works. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue are going to get saved. I've seen the future. I've seen them there. So when God tells us in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, they will listen. Not everybody you share the gospel with is going to listen, but we are guaranteed to have people listen to us. God says, I'm going with you, and they're going to listen. Response number, or excuse number four, I'm not a good speaker. The response is, I'll cause them to believe. Response number four is, I will cause them to believe. John 6, is an encouragement to us as we share the gospel. Because verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's God who ultimately saves people. It's God who ultimately draws people to salvation. It's not up to Philip. It's not up to Daniel. It's not up to Jesse to save anybody. You're called to take the message. Paul was called to take the message of Thessalonica. It did not, the, 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 the starting of the church did not rest on Paul doing it. It didn't rest on how good of a speaker he was. God drew those people to salvation. The Holy Spirit convicted him of sin. Paul tells us that. He says, you received the gospel with the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that saved him. It was the Holy Spirit that drew him. It's not our job to convince anybody to be saved. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. In Exodus 4, 13 to 14, that conclusion... After Moses has listed off every excuse, and after God has answered every excuse, Moses concludes and says, send anyone but me. Send anyone but me. It's the only time God gets angry in this whole conversation. Why do you think God gets angry when he says that? He gets angry because he's listed off every excuse he can think of. And God has answered every excuse. So for Moses to, to wrap the whole discussion up and say, send anybody but me, he's ultimately saying to God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're going to go with me. I don't believe people are going to listen to me. I don't believe you're going to do this. I don't believe you're going to give me the words to say. God gets angry because it's a lack of trust now. I've just reeled off every reason not to have an excuse. For you to say send somebody else. That makes me angry, Moses, because you're saying you don't believe me. So for us, the conclusion, God will, God will accomplish his plan. We just need to be obedient. We just need to be obedient. God had told Moses in Exodus 7, or Exodus 3, 7 through 12, he says, I'm ultimately the one that's going to lead these people out of Egypt, not you. Jesus tells us in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
It's the Holy Spirit who saves. He's the one who, who convicts people of sin. It's not Jake's responsibility to convict anybody of sin. It's Jake's responsibility to take the message of Christ. We said earlier, the gospel is powerful. It can't be stopped and our efforts are not in vain. We said God uses people to evangelize. The question is, are we going to let God use us to evangelize people? People in Sonoy get saved because people evangelize them. People share the gospel with them. That's the mode, the method that God uses. Are we going to let God use us to share the gospel here? It doesn't have to take a long time to grow a church. As a church, are we going to strive to work quickly? Are we going to strive to to set aside time in our schedule to make this happen? Are we going to set aside doing things that we enjoy doing because this takes precedent? This has to get done. This is of eternal significance. Do we say no to things in our schedule? We talked about this. You need to determine what takes priority in your schedule and what doesn't because you became a church planter when you became a part of this church. And being a church planter needs to shape your schedule. Are we going to strive to work quickly? And then number three, are we prepared for opposition? Are we prepared for opposition? It's going to come. You're going to share the gospel with people that don't accept it. You may share the gospel with people that get angry about it. That's been promised in Scripture too. People are going to listen, but not everybody's going to listen, and that's promised in Scripture. How are we going to respond? If you respond, if you choose to accept this and to do this as a church planter, you choose to... To, to move forward and strive to share the gospel, just like Paul did in Thessalonica, that we strive to build this church up through the sharing of the gospel, that we believe God has brought us here to do this, then our message, our message must be Jesus. Acts 17. Remember what Paul was teaching. It says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. His message was Christ. His message was Jesus. If you're talking to someone who, who doesn't claim to be a Christian, claims to be an atheist, claims to have nothing to do with God, you don't have to reason for the existence of God. You don't have to reason for the for creation over evolution. You reason from Christ. And I've shared this with you guys before. You don't start with someone who's not a Christian and try to explain to them how we all got here. It is going to be difficult for them to wrap their minds around faith and, and belief and trust. You wrap their minds around Christ. You say, who do you think Jesus Christ was? Nobody disputes the fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth. Who do you think he was? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Who do you think he was? What do you think happened to his body? Because nobody's ever found it. And it was widely accepted at that time that he came back from the dead. Jesus. What are you going to do about that guy at work? What are you going to do about that guy at school, girl at school? A man named Jesus walked around, claimed to be God, came to come and die, claimed to come and die on the cross for you. He came back from the dead. That doesn't happen very often. It only happened one time. What do you do with that? And then your message has to include that Jesus came to fix everything. That good works don't fix anything. Good works is the main reason people think they get saved. It's the main reason people in Sonoy think they can be saved. It's the main reason people in Griffin think they can be saved. It's the main reason that kids in my sixth grade class think they can be saved. Satan has fed a lie to this world that the way we fix what happened in the garden is that we do good things. We do good things. And Romans says we can't do enough good to atone for what happened in the garden. We can't do enough good to atone what happened this week in your life. You cannot fix your sin problem with good works. It's only by the grace of Christ, His life, His perfection, His death on the cross, and His resurrection that any of us can be saved. That's the message that we take. You worry about reasons that God exists. You worry about how creation got here and how evolution didn't have anything to do with it. You worry about that later. You stay on topic with Christ. 
Paul didn't set up some type of apologetical seminar with these people and say, let me answer every question that you have. Is there a place for that? Absolutely. That place for that is in discipleship a lot of times. We can't get off course with Christ. Christ is the message. You take Christ to people, you preach Christ to people, and we'll build this church. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for the work of Christ. We praise you and thank you that you have established churches ever since the book of Acts. God, we recognize that there was someone in our life that came and shared the gospel with us for the very first time. Whether that was a parent, whether that was a, um, a grandparent, whether that was some other relative or close friend or pastor, you divinely appointed somebody in our life to share the gospel with us. In the same way that you divinely appointed Paul to go to Thessalonica. So God, we thank you for our, for our salvation this morning. But God, we also recognize that that you've divinely appointed us to share the gospel with people too. God, would that there would be people in this area that would be able to give earthly credit to us because we were the ones that brought the gospel to them. Not so that we can boast about it, but so that we can be obedient to do what you called us to do. God, we want to leave an impact in this community through sovereign hope that we take the gospel to people that have never had it before. That we reason with them. We explain to them Christ. Why he had to die. Why he had to come back from the dead. That we explain to them that Jesus is coming again. God, I pray that you would build this church. Whether it takes three weeks. Whether it takes six months. Whether it takes ten years. God, that you would build this church. That you would grow us in your, in, in your knowledge of who you are. God, give us grace to overcome Satan's attacks, that we would not be disunified in our purpose, that we would work through things, that we would love one another the way that you called us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Tyson and the guys are going to come and lead us in a response of singing.